This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken But Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. For more resources like this, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. This talk is entitled, The Prayer Shift. The Prayer Shift. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word once again. I ask, Father God, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. And upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Lord, be with this presentation and this seminar, Father, for, uh, Lord, we, we, many of us are going through things and we need a prayer shift. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So taking the prayer thing up to the next level, in a sense, um, is this talk. Um, and we start in the book of Exodus. So this is one of those talks that I do that kind of dovetails back around. And we start in the book of Exodus in the 14th chapter at verse 10. And the, the context, and you, you never want to discuss, you read the Bible out without putting everything back into context. So I jump into the middle of the story, but this is after Moses has already convinced Pharaoh that he should let the children of Israel go. Um, you remember the final plague, the death of the firstborn has already happened. If you had put the blood of the lamb on the post outside of your house, what happened? The angel of death passed over. And that's how we get the Passover, Passock. It applies to us today. If the blood of the lamb is on the post of your heart, the angel of death passes over. Right? So um, they let him go. Pharaoh was, you have to imagine, Pharaoh was divine in the, in the mind of the Egyptians. He was God. He was one of their gods. And his son was the son of God. So when his firstborn son died, it was an attack on the divinity of Pharaoh himself. In fact, I've heard someone argue that God was merciful because Pharaoh himself would have been a firstborn child, most likely. Pharaoh could have been killed in that, in that plague. And that may be why he actually was like, look, just go. Not only was he probably grieving the firstborn in his house, but he probably also recognized that he himself could have been died. This God is that powerful that he could have taken him out. So Pharaoh lets him go. Now you got to understand, if he's supposed to be God and he lets the slaves go, who's going to believe he's God anymore? So if you, if you kind of study the thing, the people around him, his advisors probably began to say, listen, you better go get him. First of all, if they leave and don't come back, no one's going to believe you're God ever again. Number two, who's going to build all these pyramids and stuff you're building? <laughs> you better go get them back because I'm not doing all that work. So can you imagine? I mean, so at some point, his pride rose back up in him. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Exodus. Uh, actually, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Satan is not really named for who he is in those five books. He's called a serpent in Genesis, right? And you know who he is. And Revelation confirms that. When it says that old serpent called the devil, right? it confirms that that's who that is. But there are some who argue that God did not mention Lucifer or Satan in the first five books of the Bible because they were coming, out, and when Moses wrote them, they were coming out of such great superstition in Egypt that to introduce a, 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 an evil being might have been confused with introducing another god. And so the first five books of the Bible, he's not mentioned. That's one one, one explanation I've, I've heard. Now, Pharaoh, of course, gets mad, and he goes after them. Now, 
<laughs> well, let me read this and then, and then we'll go. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, now watch what they do. These some, boy, these some cantankerous folk, these children of Israel. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? They turned to Moses. Now, okay, again, you got to put it in context. They've done seen 10 powerful plagues hit Egypt. They've seen mighty Pharaoh bow and let them go. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle over the last months or however long the process took. And the first sign of danger, Pharaoh hasn't even caught up with them yet. Weren't there, was a cemetery not big enough in Egypt? Really, Moses, you had to take us out here to get killed? That's literally what they're saying. I mean, really, really, Moses, why have you dealt with us like this? Why did you take us out of Egypt? Now, did Moses take them forcefully out of Egypt? They were singing and dancing. They were carrying all the Egyptian stuff. They were happy. They were stepping. They were rich. They were good to go. They were thrilled when they left Egypt. Miriam sings a song, does a dance. Thrilled. First sign of danger. That's their response. Now, the interesting thing, I'll, I, may, I may be in another slide, but let me explain it here. God was leading them. Who was leading them? How did he lead them? There was a pillar of, of a cloud by day, well, a cloud that led them by day, and a pillar of fire that led them by night. God was the GPS system. He led them through the mountain straits, up over a mountain range, down into a, a sea bank, so that when, as they're coming up over the mountain and coming down the other side, they land in a semi-lunar space that still exists, a semi-lunar space where they land on the bottom and they are now confronted with the Red Sea. They can't go to the left or the right. There is no left or right. It's just, it, they're, they're stuck. They can go backwards, but think about going over a mountain. They kind of got to get narrow and slowly go over. That's why when they, the ones that are towards the back that are the slower ones, maybe some of the older folk, who, you know, whoever was in the back, they actually were still up on the mountain. They could look back and see Pharaoh had gotten his best chariots. He got the ones with the turbo boost. <laughs> he got his best weapons, his best soldiers, and Pharaoh was coming for them. They could see the dust from the horses and the men running, them shouting, and they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> The mightiest army on earth is coming for us, and we don't have one weapon. That's the emotion you get out of this story comes from that background. Is not this the word that we did tell you in Egypt? Didn't, didn't we tell you, Moses, just leave us alone? And then he says, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. That's deep. Now let me tell you something. The, you know, from, the, from my own history and from what I understand, people would rather die than be slaves. I mean, and the stories in North America and the Caribbean are replete. The Maroons, in the, in, if you ever want to study some fierce soldiers, study the Africans who were trapped on, on those islands, taken to those islands, and the Maroons who fought the British. They beat the British so bad in Jamaica, 
They whooped the British in Jamaica. After a while, the British just left them alone and let them stay up in the mountains. To this day, they have Maroon Town in Jamaica where the, the British never controlled them. Haiti shook off slavery before any other nation in the world shook off slavery. They, people were willing to die to be freed. I give you that context to tell you the amount of mental slavery that, uh, that affected the Egyptians, I mean the, the, the children of Israel in Egypt, was so powerful that they preferred slavery to freedom. If freedom might risk their lives. That is a twisted, really deep sense of slavery that they had. So one of the things that pops up here is doubt. I talked a lot about doubt on this trip to South Africa. And there are three things about doubt that I, I highlight in this talk. Now, remember, there are many other things you could highlight, but here they are. One, doubt is contagious. Doubt is contagious. Can somebody shut the door for me? Doubt is contagious. If one person in the congregation starts to doubt something, that thing starts to spread. You doubt, watch this. You start to doubt the leadership in your church, that spreads. You got to be careful. Touch not the Lord's anointed and do his prophet no harm. Be careful when you doubt that you're more about prayer and lifting folk up than you are about bringing folk down. Churches get destroyed like that. Number one. Number two, it's contagious because if a false doctrine comes in and folk have not been studying, that false doctrine will spread like wildfire. Doubt is contagious. First thing. Doubt is also addictive. Sounds strange. But when people start to doubt, they will quickly go back to doubt every time they have a problem. It becomes their elixir for the pain of their problem. They will begin to treat their difficulties with doubt rather than with faith. And what they'll say is, see, I knew this would never work. You, you have anybody like that in your life? Soon as something go wrong, I, I told you this would never work. Man, you don't think anything ever works. It can become addictive, and you can literally, every time something goes wrong, you go to doubt rather than going to God, rather than going to faith. So it can be addictive. But what's most important for this talk is that doubt becomes amnestic. What doubt does to you if you begin to doubt is doubt causes you to forget the good that God has done for you. Doubt functions to cause you to have, like we, when we do certain procedures, like a colonoscopy, and you, go, you know, you know well, y'all probably know what a colonoscopy is. We don't really want people to remember what happened to them. So they give them medicines that make it so you don't remember what actually happened. Doubt is like that. When people start to really doubt God, they start to forget all the good that God ever did for them. Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more for what? Forever. Never again. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. God is going to do the fighting. Just relax. Everything is going to be fine. So I'm going to switch gears now. We're going to come back to Moses and the children of Israel. And I want to jump to Psalm 77. The Bible, if you read in the, in, in the, the title under Psalm 77, it usually says, a psalm by Asaph is what it will say. The spirit of prophecy tells us that David wrote this psalm. Seems like it's a conflict. But Asaph was a musician. And I would have to believe that David and Asaph teamed up to write this psalm. That, that's the way I look at it. Um, but this is a powerful psalm. We're told that Asaph actually was with David, Solomon, and maybe even into the time of Solomon's son Rehoboam. 
So Asaph saw heartbreak in the castle, in the, in the worship services. He followed this thing and he saw some difficult, tough stuff. And so this psalm really is him crying out to God when he has given up on God. When he's done what? This is one of the few times in the Bible, the Bible actually records someone spiral into doubt and despair and they give up on God. Yet, in this same psalm, there's a prayer shift and Asaph comes around the other way. So anytime you're doubting and struggling, Psalm 77 is one of the best psalms to actually read and study. It starts out, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. So he starts with a prayer. So there are stages of doubt. And this is the first list. I'll tell you two lists in this talk. This is the first one. Stages of doubt. Now these are, the, uh, this is a form for me to show you that this is actually the introduction. This is not the actual list yet. I told you this one was a little more complex. I, I must have been thinking of this when I was writing my dissertation. Because um, it's got all these phases and components. Um, stages of doubt. Start with your pre-child understanding of, of God. So when you begin to, when you begin to, when a trial hits you, the first thing you do is you think about God and you think about him the way you understand him. That only makes sense, right? You think about him the way you understand him. If you think of God as this cold, callous, vengeful um, God that is looking to condemn you and destroy you, when doubt and trial comes, that's the God that you're going to be dealing with. In other words, you're going to make that your God. You're going to deal with God as if that's the way God is. It is very important that you understand that God is merciful, that he's gracious, that he's long-suffering. When trial comes, you need to know that because if you don't understand that, you'll think, I'm being punished, God is unfair, I don't deserve this. So you start with the pre-trial, your pre-trial understanding of God. Secondly, in the stages of doubt before we get to the real stages, you seek God based on that understanding when, you, when trial and trouble is coming. So what happens? If you think God is cold and calculating, that he's mean and merciless, when trial comes, are you going to go to that God for help? Probably not. A lot of people, you, you want to say, man, why won't you turn to God? Because their view of who God is, is off. The gentleman and brother there just told me that a lot of people don't really know who Jesus is. They go to church and they don't really understand who Christ is. If you don't really understand who Christ is, you can't really pray right. You can't really seek him right. If you understand the length to which he, he's gone to save just you, and I like when I was a kid, they would say, listen, if it was only you on earth, he would have still come and died just for you. If all the other billions of people had never been born, he would have died just for you. So you got to understand who God is when you enter into trial or else you won't make it through. So stage number one of doubt, the trial itself hits. So you've heard my testimony. I went through these stages. The trial hits. Psalm 77, 2, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Have you ever been in such trouble that nothing could console you? You were just, it was all worry, trial, and trouble all the time. Well, the trial hits. You got a day of trouble. You seek the Lord, and man, you can't sleep at night. You're going to see how, how bad it gets. So after the trial hits, you feel pain, discomfort, and you react with complaint. And this is the second step in the stages of doubt. Psalm 77, 3, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed, Selah. The second stage of doubt is, one, you get hit by the trial. The second stage, just like the children of Israel, you complain, 
Lord, weren't there enough spaces in the cemeteries in Egypt that we could have stayed there and been buried near one of them pyramids or something? Right? You start to complain. Understand that when you go through trial, and I, and I, and I used some of Ellen White's quotes yesterday on this. When you go through trial, you, you, complaining and blaming other people will, will, will cause you not to reap the benefit of the trial. If you don't say, Lord, what is it you want me to do? What am I supposed to learn? What is it about me you want to work on or change? If you don't get there, you'll complain and you'll miss it. Number three, you become overwhelmed at the lack of resolution. He says, I complain and my spirit was overwhelmed. Look at what happens. He says, thou holdest mine eyes waking, meaning I can't sleep. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You get to a point where you can't even verbalize what you're going through. It's so deep, and I've been there. It's just so painful, guttural, deep, that you can't even express to someone else what you're going through. So you become overwhelmed at the lack of resolution. Then you think of better times and search for the God of those times. In other words, you start saying, well, God was good to me before. Why can't he be good to me now? I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. And what happens is you start saying, wait a minute, God. You were good before. Why aren't you good now? You, 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 I, you know, you helped me before. Why aren't you helping me now? You start to question God based on time. And when you do that, then you start to say, well, maybe God wasn't really good at all. You get to the stage five where you say, maybe God isn't good after all. And Psalm 77 and verse 7 says, will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? You get so bad in your trial that you start to say, maybe God isn't really all that good. Maybe he's never going to be favorable. Maybe he's never going to treat me right again. And you get to a point where you really just begin to question God and his goodness. Then, of course, by default, you begin to question his word. Psalm 77, 8, is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Does his promise fail? So now you start saying, well, maybe the Bible isn't right. Now, like, this is what starts happening about this stage. You stop coming to church. You stop doing devotion. You begin to almost intentionally detach from God and the things of God. Because you're so angry with God. You start to question him. Then you question, ultimately, is God even able to save anyway? Psalm 77 and verse 9, he says, Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? We talked about the difference between grace and mercy. I'm a Christian because of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy is why I'm a Christian. I love the seven-day Sabbath doctrine, the 2300-day doctrine. I love the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. But without grace and mercy, it really doesn't even matter. Grace and mercy is why I'm a Christian. And the difference between Protestant Christianity and almost every other religion in the world is, every other religion in the world, almost every other one tells you, you've got to work your way into salvation, work your way into paradise, work your way into nirvana, work your way in, out of purgatory and into heaven. You've got to work, 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 work. Only Christianity says, listen, you, even if you worked all day, every day, you'd never work your way into, into perfection. It is a free gift of God, grace and mercy, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once you begin to question that, you're definitely not coming to church now. Now you tell another folk to stop going to church. 
But something happened. Psalm 77, and I said, this is King James Version here, Amplified Bible of the same verse here. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. The Amplified Bible really gives you a, a, another look at it. It says, this is my grief that the Lord, that the right hand of the Most High, God, High has changed and his loving kindness is withheld. In other words, God has changed is where you get to. Number eight, the last stage, you begin to believe that God has changed. Not that you changed. He changed. And once you start to believe this, you're definitely not coming to church. You're, not trying, to, you're trying to get other folk to stop going to church. You're so angry with God, so confused about God, the doubt has now crept in so deeply that you want nothing to do with God. Once we begin to believe that God is not trustworthy, that he can go back on his word, that he can change, we begin to drift into great darkness. So there's a prayer shift. The good news about this psalm is that he doesn't stop there. But I don't know if they would have made it in the Bible if he would have stopped there. Uh, but here's where he goes with it. Asaph in his troubles, and you can throw David in there, changes the very nature and direction of his prayer. This prayer shift holds a key to dealing with doubt. It is a secret to successful prayer and power in time of trial. So here's the list, the second list. Remember I told you? Second list. The second list now is how to shift your prayer for power. Shift your prayer in times of, of persecution, in times of difficulty. Making the shift. Number one, focus on who God is by focusing on what he has done. Remember in the last presentation, what's the first thing you do? You praise God. Always remembering how good God is. Always reminding yourself. Always telling God how merciful, wonderful, and worthwhile he is. How worthy he is of praise. Here, similar. Focus on who God is by focusing on what he has done. So, before I go to the verse, this was the, when I talked about the three Hebrew boys yesterday. You know why they were able to stand in front of that fire and not, not, not at all worry? They knew who God was. They never, they not even for a split second did one of those boys, at least based on what's in the scripture, not for a split second did they question God. So they, the question in their mind was never what God was able to do or what he was going to do or what he wouldn't do. The question for them was, will they stay faithful to a God that they know is faithful, that they know is able? When you pray and you get into these doldrums and life is hard, you got to focus on who God is. Psalm 77, 11 is our verse that we read initially. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Watch this. The reason the Bible gives you the stories it gives you is so that when you get into trial, you can go back and remember David running from Saul. You can go back and remember Abraham uh, dealing with uh, the, 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 the pre-incarnate Christ pleading with God on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And how God said, Abraham is my friend. The stories in the Old Testament, if you go back and you focus on, uh, well, see, here's the thing, those guys were flawed. They weren't perfect. David had a man killed, slept with his wife. I mean, if, 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 some of, if any of us did that in our churches, boy, they... I don't know, they wouldn't let you within two blocks of the church. 
Yet David is a man after God's own heart. Are you getting what I'm saying? When you get into trial, you got to go back and look at how God delivered them. When Hezekiah got the letter from the king of Assyria saying that he was going to destroy Hezekiah, you know, rip him to shreds, just take, do all this stuff to him. Hezekiah, the Bible says, Hezekiah takes the letters. And the Bible says he lays the pages out in front of him. And Hezekiah weeps and cries unto God over those letters. And the Bible says that that night, God sends an angel. How many angels? One angel. And the one angel wipes out 180,000 of the, of the troops of the Assyrians. So when you get into trial, you've got to go back and remember his wonders of old. The New Testament, the apostle says, listen, those stories are for your admonition. Hezekiah wasn't perfect. We, we find that out in this story. So sometimes you're beating yourself up because you're not perfect. Because you're not perfect doesn't mean God, you're not God's chosen. Doesn't mean you're not his child. Doesn't mean he's not going to use you. Doesn't mean he's not going to forgive you. He forgave David. And I doubt any of y'all did, I hope you didn't do what David did, because I mean, that was pretty cruel, putting that man on the front of the line. But you get my point? They're given to you, so you got to go back. But it's not just the wonders in the scripture. You've got to be intentional about remembering what God has done for you. Go back and think about, I, I, sometimes when I get into a bind, I think, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. I go back and I remember how I agonized with him when I had exams in medical school. I go back and I remember the patient that, died on the table, flatlined as I was taking care of a patient, and prayed, and the woman came back from, went back to normal silence. We gave her medications and everything, but I, I thought for sure she was gone. And I laid her hand on that woman and prayed, and that woman, before it was all over, that woman sat up. And I could go on and on. When I get into a body, I got to stop myself and say, why, don't, don't let doubt creep in. Do you remember when you didn't think you'd pass your board so you could practice medicine? Do you remember? I mean, I can just go through all the time, go back to my childhood. You got to keep, that's why that prayer journal is so important. You go back, I go back now and I read stuff, I'm like, wow, look how God worked that thing out. Why am I worried about this one if God worked that one out? Start your prayers not with your complaints, but with an acknowledgement of who God is. Praise. Number two, tell others. You want to make the prayer shift? Here's what tell others means. Pray with the testimony in mind. Pray with the testimony in mind. You going through something, Lord, I ask for you to deliver me so I can go before everybody and tell the world just how wonderfully you delivered me. Pray with the testimony in mind. Tell others. This is what he says. I will meditate also of all thy work. And look at this. I'm going to talk of thy doings. Psalm 77, 12. The problem comes, you say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for the test, for my test is going to become a testimony. Why is that important? Because you remember 10% of what you read, 20% of what you hear, 30% of what you see, 50% of what you see and hear, which is why I like using these slides, 70% of what is discussed with others, 80% of what is experienced personally, Look at number, what, where you learn the most. 95% of what we teach to someone else. That's why testimonies are so important. Did you get that? They're important because they remind you of how good God is. Number one. Number two, that's why being, doing Bible study with people is so important. 
by teaching other folk what you believe, you learn what you believe a whole lot better. When I was in medical school, we had a big disadvantage. There were a few Adventists, and there was a Jewish young lady who, who, who um, studied with us, and um, we stopped getting instruction on Friday afternoon. The test was Monday morning. So everyone else, as soon as class was over on Friday, they went and got something to eat. They went home, and guess what they did? They studied all Friday night, all day Sabbath, all weekend. So they had a 24-hour jump on us in studying. And what we did is on Saturday after Sabbath, we came back together at the medical school, and myself, another Adventist guy, and his Jewish girl, and we would teach each other the lesson. We'd put it up on the board. I don't know how we had enough time. We'd stay up late, late night studying, get up as early as we could and start all over again. And by God's grace, all of us in four years went through medical school. Amen. Just like we're supposed to. Teaching someone else is important. Testifying of what God has done is important, not just to fortify the strength and faith of others, by giving the testimony, there is a conscious acknowledgement of exactly what God actually did for you. The third thing, question everything but God. You can question your boss, you can question, you can question the pastor, you can question your spouse, you can question your child, you can question whoever you want when you're going through a trial. Don't question God. He says, thy way, O God, is where? Is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Did you know, so a lot of times we pull that verse out of context to teach the sanctuary message. God's way is in the sanctuary, and it's true. Put it back in context. Do you see what he's really using the sanctuary for? He's using the sanctuary message as a way to build the faith and encouragement of the people of Israel. He's saying here, as, as he's going through the trial and he's turning the table, as the prayer is shifting, what Asaph and David are doing is they're saying, the sanctuary message tells me I don't have to question God. The sanctuary message tells me he's faithful. He will do what he said he will do. The sanctuary message anchors your faith because it tells you the great extent to which God will go to save you. Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. There's no need to question him. He does wonders. Thou hast with thy arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Redeemed by thy people. I mean, he's saying, listen, he's faithful. Remember that in doubt you question whether or not God can save? You don't question God. As that prayer shift happens, you know that God saves. You, you, you recognize it. But the fourth one is my favorite one. Number four says, remember, what you fear, fears God. What you fear, fears God. Watch this. The water saw thee, O God. The water saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. So Asaph now does what he tells you to do. He says, he goes back to where we left the children of Israel. Remember, we left the children of Israel. They're at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming up behind them. And they're panicking. Weren't there enough spaces in the graves back in Egypt? Asaph says, what you didn't understand is that when God's presence got near the Red Sea, 
the water saw God. And the water was afraid. But you didn't know, you didn't know water had emotion, did you? The water was afraid. In fact, the Bible says the depths also were troubled. The very Red Sea that they thought was an obstacle was actually a subject of the Most High God. They had nothing to fear because they didn't understand the water was simply a gatekeeper for God. And once God showed up on the scene, the water itself was all shook up. When Moses just simply did what God told him to do, poof. The water obeyed. Now, I don't know how it did it. I've been telling you all weekend, all weekend that Jesus and God can defy the laws of physics. So I don't know if the water just decided to climb up, the molecule just decided to climb one up on top of the other. I don't know if they pulled back and froze. And I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. But I can tell you that when the children of Israel walked across the Red Sea, they walked across on dry land. There wasn't one puddle of mud not one. They walked and they, were, they had to get to the other side. They had to shake the dust off. They said, man, there's some dusty. Red Sea all dusty. I like this one too. Number five says, faith grows when there are no footprints. Faith grows when there are no footprints. This one is critical for those of you who are trying to find which direction you're going in life. What's next for you? Psalm 77, verse 19 says, Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters. That's him talking about how they got across the Red Sea. He says, and thy footsteps are not known. Okay, let me make sure I don't miss the pieces of this one. Because I like this one. What he's saying is, listen, God led them into a trap. Did you get that? They followed God into a trap. Because God can't be trapped. So it wasn't a trap for God, it was a trap for them. They followed him. Watch this. If they'd known where God was leading them, a lot of them might not have followed. God does not, often does not tell you where you're going. Because if you knew where you're going, you wouldn't follow. Number one. Number two, it takes no faith to follow if you know exactly every step you have to take. It, is, it develops your faith when there is ambiguity as to where God wants you to go. I've talked to many people at this conference and last week in Port Elizabeth who are trying to figure out what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do next? Where is God trying to lead me? And there's a lot of ways to answer that and look at it. But by not knowing, it causes you to have to pause and talk to God. Instead of complaining, the children of Israel should have been praying. Some of you don't know, my Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know where this career is leading me. I don't know where I should go to school. He does not give you the exact, it's not like the steps pop up on the ground and you just follow them. You have to wait and allow God to move you. He sometimes has to shut a door you think you were supposed to go through and open a window. And when he does that, you learn to trust him, that he is a God that does not just use doors. He uses doors, windows, and them little doggy doors that a dog can crawl in. He'll open up what needs to be opened up for you if you trust him. The sixth thing, if you're going to make the prayer shift, remember that God's purpose is bigger than your problem. 
has resonated me when I went through the stuff I went through. And the Lord said unto Moses, we go back to Exodus 14 and verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? God's like, would you, Moses, what you crying for? You know, sometimes we begging, oh, Lord, Lord. God is like, would, would y'all just shape up and handle the business? Speak unto the children of Israel. What is he supposed to tell them? Go forward. That's the message. The whole sermon that day was, hey, time to go. We're moving forward. We will not stay here in fear. But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it and the children of Israel shall go on what? Dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh. Why did God lead them into a trap? Because God said, listen, I'm going to deal with this empire once and for all. And by dealing with them, when you get to the promised land, you're going to get to a people who heard about what happened to mighty Pharaoh and the folk you're going to conquer will already be afraid of you. God was working for them three steps down, like playing chess. I like to play chess on my phone. Because I, I don't want to get Alzheimer's. They say if you just keep using your brain, you won't get it. So I, I got all these little things on my phone I do in my spirit when I'm sitting waiting like at the airport. So God was three, four steps ahead like in chess. They were worried about the Egyptian. God was already dealing with the Canaanites for them. Sometimes you're dealing with the enemy in front of you. You don't realize God is dealing with, God's already dealt with the one in front of you. He's setting you up to deal with the one three, four days down. And I will get me on upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians, who? The very people who oppressed you for the last 400 years, they're going to know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Who's going to know? The very nation that had to let you go. They're going to know that I am God. Ellen White says it like this in Patriarchs and Prophets. She says, God in his providence brought the Hebrews into the mountain fastness before the sea that he might manifest his power in their deliverance and signally humble the pride of their oppressors. He might have saved them in any other way, any other way, but he chose this method in order to test their faith and strengthen their trust in him. So one, he wanted to humble their oppressors. Can you imagine when the word got back to Egypt? When it got forward to Canaan? But the children of Israel themselves now understood God delivers. There is nothing too hard for God. The last one. Making the shift. Remember that the Lord is still our shepherd. When you're going through stuff, you got to remember the shepherd leads you in a way. Sometimes the sheep don't understand. You know, man, this is some rocky terrain the shepherd taking us over. I don't understand why he's bringing us around this way. You don't realize the shepherd knows there's wolves on the easy, easy path. So he's leading you on a more difficult path that's a safer path. The Lord is our shepherd. He says in Psalm 77 and verse 20, Thou ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The Lord is our shepherd. And we are his flock. Why sheep? Why does the Bible use sheep so much? In fact, I would argue in the country of my favorite, one of my favorite preachers, Walter Weiss, that one of the best arguments against evolution is the sheep. 
Sheep don't make any sense. They can't fight. They don't have no porcupine things to stick people with if they come after them. They can't skunk people. They can't run fast. They have no defense system whatsoever. Think about a sheep. It's just woolly. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, that's it. There's a big old white target you can see from all the way across the field. And on top of that, they're dumb. They're like some of the dumbest animals in all of creation. A pig is unclean, but it's smarter than a sheep. Watch this. There's a reason we're sheep. Because we're defenseless. We honestly can't defend ourselves against the enemy. Right? But there's nothing you can do to really fight the enemy. We think we can, the devil come, I'm going to shake him. No, the devil come, you had to jump behind Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. Not only are you defenseless, spiritually, we're often not that bright. We will continue to make the wrong decision over and over and over again. The only way the sheep has survived all the millennia, because he never, according to evolution, he should have adapted some mechanism to stay alive. He never did. It's because the sheep needs to hear and understand the voice of the shepherd. If the, as long as the sheep understands and hears the shepherd, the sheep is going to be all right. We are the sheep. Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says, the great lesson here taught is for all time. Often the Christian life is beset by dangers and duty seems hard to perform. The imagination pictures impending ruin before and bondage or death behind. Yet the voice of God speaks clearly, go forward. Watch this, don't miss this. We should obey this command even though our eyes cannot penetrate the darkness and we feel the cold waves about our feet. You go forward. Now, I, I, I skipped the whole part of the story. And that is that when, the, when that verse, when we talk about how the lightning flashed and everything, remember there was a, a cloud? The cloud lifted up that they were following. It got them to the Red Sea. It lifted up over the mountain, carried itself all the way back to where Pharaoh was and dropped on Pharaoh and lightning was flashing in there. The Egyptians were in a cloud. So the whole time, you got to think, how did all those people cross the Red Sea? How did they all have time to get across? Because Pharaoh was in a cloud getting lightning shot at him, all kind of stuff. The ground is trembling. They didn't know, they couldn't go anywhere. They were frozen while the children of Israel walked in safety on a dusty sea floor. You're going to come across some dangers. Maybe difficult to perform the duties of being a Christian. Your imagination will picture every type of ruin, bondage, even death. That, that's, that's where your mind will often go. But the voice of God will speak clearly to say, go forward. Don't be afraid. We should obey this command, even though our eyes cannot penetrate the darkness. I like what Ellen White says here. And we feel the cold waves about our feet. As you think to go into the Red Sea and the water touches, you know, it would happen winter time and you go into the sea and the water's you touch woo. He's saying, go forward. The obstacles that hinder our progress will never disappear before a halting, doubting spirit. Those who defer obedience till every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will never obey at all. 
unbelief whispers, let us wait till the obstructions are removed and we can see our way clearly. But faith, but faith courageously urges and advance, hoping all things, believing all things. I like this one. Those who defer obedience till every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will actually never obey at all. Obedience, by definition, means you take some risk trusting God. So make the prayer shift. That's the last slide. And I can tell you, when I was going through my trial, Psalm 77 was an important psalm. I could sympathize with the first half of it, where Asaph is like, look, maybe God has just forgotten to be good. Maybe God has changed. Maybe, I mean, maybe he's disappeared. But then you stop and you start to remember all the times you needed God before. And you say, he's still that same God. You see, when David got to Goliath, the power of that story is, when David gets to Goliath, and all of the hosts of Israel are afraid, and everybody's shaking in their boots, David hears Goliath blaspheming the God of Israel, speaking ill of his God. David, a boy, looks around at all these grown men who are supposed to be soldiers in the army of the living God. And all David can hear are all the reasons not to deal with the giant. You know how David, <laughs> David justifies the fact that he's going to go fight? And it's such a strong justification that Saul is like, okay, here, uh, take my armor. You can have it. David says, your servant was watching his father's sheep. And a bear came. And I slew the bear. He says, and then a lion came. And I killed the lion. He says, and this uncircumcised Philistine, that's literally what the Bible says, shall be as one of them. You get that? It was providential. David says, wait a minute, if God could have a boy kill a bear, I don't think y'all have bears in Africa. A bear is no joke. If God could have a boy kill a lion, David said, by common sense reasoning, I don't have to worry about a giant. Are you getting what I'm saying? God has sent bears into your life that you have to deal with. Trials that are bears for you to deal with. And he sent lions into your life, and you've had to deal with those lions. The difficulty of your past, of, of mistakes you've made, of overcoming hatred, problems in your family, drugs, alcohol, promiscuity. I don't know what the bears and lions that you've had to deal with are, but God gave you the opportunity to deal with the bear and the lion because one day God is going to call you like David to deal with the giant. Shift your prayer. Remember that God helped you deal with the small challenges. I'm telling you, and they seem like big challenges. Those exams when I was taking them seemed like the end of the world. Now, just eh, it's on the exam. You understand what I'm saying? And God has shown me there's much deeper, heavier, bigger things to deal with in this life than exams, as important as those exams were. Make the prayer shift. And God will always show up.
Amen? Amen. Any comments, questions before we go over? How much time do we have? One minute. All right, so we'll pray. Uh, bow your heads. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for Psalm 77, where Asaph and David make this prayer shift and begin to remember your goodness, your mercies, your graciousness, the wonders of old. Help us, Father God, to pray, remembering who you are and who you've been not only to us, but who you've been throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. As we leave this conference, help us go forward praying differently, understanding that our God, our God is a real God. We are not speaking to walls and ceilings. We are speaking to the king of the universe. And our Father God, you hear our prayers. Many times, Lord, you've already answered them before we speak them. Let our prayers be bold. Let us come boldly before the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This message was presented at the Amen Missions 2017 Bible Conference, Shaken but Not Forsaken, in Cape Town, South Africa. Amen Missions, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is a youth-led ministry seeking to inspire young people to be Bible-based, mission-focused, and Christ-centered Christians. Our aim is to assist in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world in this generation, starting in South Africa. For more resources like this, or to find out how to support this work, visit us at www.amen-missions.co.za. Amen. Advent message to every nation. This recording was produced by the Preparation Ministry.